Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Carl Weinberg is chief economist at High Frequency Economics. He watches Japan. He watches gold. Uh, I want to get to Japan in just a moment. But let's talk a little bit of that history. Nixon probably didn't realize he was doing it at the time, but he profoundly altered the global economy by taking the U.S. off the gold standard. And he did a little more than just take us off the gold standard. That same day, he also slammed the door shut on imports of Japanese vehicles, which is probably why the stock market went up the next day, all those big automakers and the and the Dow Jones. And he also introduced the first phase of wage and price controls right. against a whopping 2.5% inflation rate uh, because he was afraid of national security. The Vietnam War was heating the economy over the time. So a lot of things um, happened that day. Uh, I think that the floating currency was happening Anyhow, if you read uh, Robert Solomon's book on the history of the world financial system, you know, he says the most outstanding characteristic of the period of fixed exchange rates was how often they adjusted them. And like every month, the finance ministers were getting together someplace nice to re-rig uh, fixed exchange rates. So that was coming anyhow. It was a shock to the French that he wouldn't give them their gold, but it wasn't really a shock to the world economy as much as some of the other things he did that day. Well, historically... Um Franklin Roosevelt would call his top advisors into his bedroom, and they would decide on the gold price that morning. Well, I was just going. I was not a co- an economist at the time. I don't know where Richard Nixon took his uh, cabinet trust. Uh, I was ac- I was actually on my <laughs> way to we graduate do that, school. We that do that time. at the Keene household every morning. Tom Keene <laughs> gets together with his children and decides this- the price of uh, the price of an iPad probably uh, is yeah. is the currency du jour at your house today. I, I was actually packed up to go to graduate school in economics the very next day. All my earthly positions were my Volkswagen um, uh, Beetle, and I was taped down to a chair by my roommates in college who said, if you're going to be an economist, you're going to watch this speech, and then you're going to tell us what it means. And I have to say, 40 years yeah. later, I still don't know what it means. Well, that was because you, you the week before you were at Woodstock, right? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to discuss that. <laughs> okay. uh, Bloomberg Surveillance this morning, we welcome all of you. I love this, talking in gold standard with uh, Carl Weinberg. Barry Eichengreen has a definitive book on how we got to Richard Nixon and the freeing of gold, Golden Fetters, that implies that gold is a disciplinary force. Where's the disciplinary force today? Well, you know, the world's changed a bit. The problem with gold is that there wasn't enough of it and there still isn't enough to, to allow for enough growth of the world financial system to get to where we are today. The world economy would be strangled by a shortage of gold supply if all of our money were linked to gold. So since money has to be backed by something, today we put our faith and trust in the government and we back our money with bonds rather than with uh, gold specie. And bonds have become the new specie, if you will. But there's an argument being made by a lot of uh, politicians that we should go back to the gold standard because it would keep Washington honest. You know, Washington being honest is one thing, and the gold standard is quite another thing. I don't see how mechanically we could do that. I don't see how we could lomp down our money supply, for lack of a better word, to the size that would be required to, to match it up with the amount of gold that we have. And frankly, I, I think it's a bad idea. You know, gold was something important in its time. But for right now, I don't really think that gold is relevant. People say they're worried about inflation, and they say, well, gold will prevent us from having inflation. Well, hello, you know, I'm having a hard time imagining inflation pretty much any place in the world right now. <laughs> uh, what is gold? 
If gold is not, I mean, you say it was important for its time. What is it now? Well, it's a speculative vehicle. You know, in a time of negative interest rates, gold could actually have appeal. If you have a way to keep it and store it, it earns a better rate of return than money in the bank if you're paying your bank to hold your deposits. And there may be a bit of a resurgence in gold on the back of that. Uh, certainly, cash should be in greater demand if money under the mattress pays better than uh, money um, in the bank. And at the end of the day, cash is, you know, supposedly backed by whether it's gold or specie or whatever, or it's the same thing. It's a zero-interest security. I look today at how we want the police to help us out. We're eight years into a crisis. I haven't even done the math. Like this week is the anniversary of when we went out for standard deviations in LIBOR. Are we beyond the crisis yet, Carl Weinberg? Well, Tom, you know my view on this. I, I think that we are in a global economic depression that began with the global financial crisis, and we're now in the eighth year of it. And, you know, the Great Depression was a 10-year event. People forget about that. They think, you know, stocks crashed in uh, 29, and uh, everybody jumped out the window, and it was over, and we recovered. But, in fact, it was a decade with three yeah. distinct waves in it. And right now, we are certainly through two full waves of this crisis that was spawned by the global financial crisis. And at the end of the day, world GDP is not growing very much. World industrial production is not grown at all outside of China. So uh, I, I think that we are experiencing a prolonged event here, and it's a mistake to talk about recovery and boom and bust within this. We do have a cycle within it, but the big story is that we can't grow because people are not putting money at risk right now. Well, do we, uh, do we really resemble the, the 1930s? Well, the 30s was a deeper crash on the stock market for sure, all right? But you look at what's happening in industrial production, all right? Not quite as deep, but certainly prolonged and certainly, uh, I'll call it institutional, Right. We look at some places, you know, that are, you know, like Japan, where industrial production is back at the level where it was in 1988. And we look at Europe, we see we're back look at, at the Italy. level of I mean, some of the charts in Italy are just extraordinary. It's a very, very hard time in the world economy right now, and whether historians will call it a depression or not is moot. One thing is sure, and we were just talking about this on TV, Tom, you know, monetary policy doesn't seem to be working. It's not working in Japan. It's not delivering the results in Europe. You know, whether it works in the U.K. at this phase remains to be seen. And yeah. uh, when monetary policy doesn't work, you know, Keynes called that a liquidity trap. Is there – this is – and good morning, Gary Schilling, if you're listening in uh, from a BF. I wonder what the Bs of Gary Schilling do in the 90 degrees. <laughs> I really wonder what we'll have to ask him that next time he's in. Gary Schilling in his classic book on deflation, I, I, I get a royalty check about not every 90 days, every 180 days. Good and bad deflation. Is Japan having good deflation? I think Japan is having bad everything right now, and uh, deflation is only one aspect of what's happening there. The depopulation of Japan has consequences, and among those consequences are a shrinking economy, falling prices, rising debt relative to income, rising debt relative to population. Right? There's no upside to what's happening in uh, Japan right now, and that's the end of the conversation as far as I'm concerned. You know, there's a thing, a lot of things to talk about with Carl Weinberg, uh, IMF, Japan, uh, talk about productivity. We could also talk about chickens in the heat wave. We were mentioning Gary Shilley earlier. <laughs> what do the bees do when it's sunny? Carl, 
You, how many chickens do you have? Well, we're down to about uh, 11 now. We were up to 17 at one point. 11 chickens. 11 chickens. And we've got pretty good productivity out of them in the heat. There. Do they watch the Olympics when it's this hot? <laughs> <laughs> what they do is they try to stay out of the thunderstorms when it gets to be this hot. But they are making eggs. So for those of you who are looking at egg futures out there, I can say that certainly on the Weinberg Chicken Ranch that the eggs are abundant. I'll bring you some next And that's your farm report with Bloomberg <laughs> Surveillance. Here we are. Michael. Peoria, I remember in the early days of my career, we used to yeah. the farm report. Farm journal. Farm journal, exactly. Um, if I can't, I know Tom wants to talk a little bit about uh, productivity. I want to ask a, a, a quick question, though, about um, this proposal that seems to have come out over the weekend from the International Monetary Fund. Uh, you mentioned earlier that this is, uh, along with the gold standard, the, the anniversary of Nixon imposing wage and price controls. The IMF says Japan should do the opposite. Uh, income, uh, you know, guarantee that wages are going to go higher. Force companies to commit to Force. higher wages uh, in, in order to stimulate consumer spending. And I guess if people feel <laughs> their wages are going to keep going up, maybe that boosts spending and, and inflation uh, with more money coming into the economy that way. They say this would be better than helicopter money. Yeah, well, I haven't seen the uh, the IMF report, but um, you know, based on what you've told me, first of all, anything is better than helicopter money because helicopter money just can't and won't happen. And every policymaker has pretty been, been pretty clear about that. So I don't know why that is still in discussion amongst the economists uh, and journalists. As far as you know, giving a wage policy is concerned, this is what the British used to call a wage policy. You know, call me old-fashioned, but where I come from, wages are a result of the economic system and not a policy variable. And that at the end of the day, you pay people the value of their marginal product. And in Japan, with a declining population, with declining demand, it's going to be hard to keep marginal product of workers rising. So I think that, you know, I don't know the context that this proposal came in, but it sounds to me like it's not a very IMF-like proposal. Is there anything that you can see them doing in the short run. Uh, I mean, uh, September 21st, I guess, the next BOJ meeting. Anything from them, anything from uh, Abisan that could generate the kind of growth that they want to have? Well, Mike, Tom, you know what I'm going to say next because I say it every time I'm here. Japan needs more people. doesn't need more quantitative easing. It doesn't need more public sector debt or fiscal stimulus. It needs more people. Open the doors, let in the people. There are lots of unemployed people in Europe, lots of unemployed people in Asia, lots of unemployed people everywhere in the world, all right, some of whom, if they would be welcomed into Japan, might come. Without people, with a shrinking population, the economy has to shrink and with, with deflation, and neither monetary nor fiscal policy can defeat that. Yeah, I, I look at this, and I guess the silliness of, you know, demanded wage increases goes right over to productivity in the bombshell that you and I witnessed last week while McKee was using my vacation days. Oh, and thank and, you for that. And the denominator of all this falderall is hours worked. I had no less than four emails, tweets, like, et cetera, et cetera, saying, how do we count hours work where we're all wedded to our cell phones 26-8? I mean, is hours worked a legitimate number? Yeah, that's a tough one, Tom. You know, all measurement has to be reconsidered in the age of a lot of digital communications. You know, do we take vacations at all? You know, should that be added back into productivity, the time we spend on vacation? And just answering that one email, which could be the crux of a deal or the, you know, a very important transaction or something critical uh, to your company. You know, I, I think that we are working harder, generally speaking, for people in certain categories of labor. 
Right? In other categories of labor, it's not really that important. For example, factory workers. All right? It doesn't matter if the phone goes off when they're away. They're not in their factory. They're not making stuff. They're not a big part. They're a shrinking part of the population, but just the same, they're, an, they're, they're important. Uh, service sector workers, okay, if you work in a restaurant, you know, if either you're working or you're not. If you're driving a cab, if you're doing anything in the services sector, uh, you're less productive. Although in other places of the service sector, like lawyers and investment bankers and so forth, um, so I think that, that there's a mix of experience around the economy, but I think that hours yeah. worked is something that has to be reconsidered. Very quickly here, uh, and, and, we'll co- and we're going to continue on. To Mike's point, which he said many times, Barry Ritholtz last week questioning how we measure productivity. Do we measure it correctly? Um, well, I think we do the best we can. You know, correct, you're never going to get it uh, correct. I do think we need to reconsider the impact of digital technology on the way that we work, on our, the influence on the workforce. And I think that, you know, from time to time we get benchmark revisions to our series, and I think that yeah. certainly has to be one of the things that will be considered. Mike, where are you on this? Ritholtz was screaming a storm up when he was auditioning for your spot. Uh, <laughs> Barry was like all over, like productivity, we're not measuring it correctly. Where are you? I, I don't think we're measuring it correctly, but I'm not sure a lot of the additional electronics <clears throat> contributes a whole lot to growth. Yeah. So I'm not sure that productivity is uh, an is impact. I'm with you. Uh, Carl Weinberg, thank you so much. High frequency economics, particularly on Mr. Nixon and the gold standard on economics, finance and investment. This is Bloomberg surveillance. This is Bloomberg. I mentioned uh, Empire Manufacturing Housing Market Index from the, the Home Builders today. Not big deals, but uh, we do get housing starts tomorrow. And on Wednesday, we get the Fed minutes, and that's kind of a focus for a lot of people in the markets. Tony Krasinski is a market strategist, portfolio manager for uh, PIMCO. He uh, especially keeps an eye on, on the short end of things. And Francine Lacroix asked me this morning, morning what uh, – what the minutes mean. And I basically said, um, this is about your vacation, you know, because if the minutes are really dovish, then everybody kind of says, well, would, uh, Janet Yellen doesn't have to do anything in Jackson Hole. But if she's ha- if they're hawkish, then there's a big focus on what she right. says out there. Well, I was just reading through the last speech by Bill Dudley, the New York Fed president. He spoke on July 31st. He's speaking again this week. The reason I would focus on him is he's considered one of the three most powerful members of the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee, the body that sets interest rate policy. Uh, And he spoke to a lot of the different headwinds in the United States. And he said perhaps there's evidence accumulating that suggests that these headwinds won't fade as fast as the Fed previously thought. Remember, the Fed going into 2016 thought the Fed thought it might raise interest rates as many as four times, raise the federal funds rate a quarter point four times and hasn't raised it at all. Uh, And so uh, the minutes may clarify whether they think these headwinds, the Fed, uh, are fading or whether they think they should pay attention to the fact that the jobless rate is uh, low enough to produce uh, higher wage gains and hence ultimately higher inflation, one of the two things the Fed's charged with uh, fixing uh, inflation, of course, and employment. The minutes are of a meeting that took place three weeks ago and decisions that were based on data that came even before that. Since then, we've had a very strong jobs report, as you mentioned. We'll get on the same day we get the minutes, we're going to get uh, – actually, the day before we get the minutes, we're going right. to get CPI. We'll have an idea of what's happening with inflation. Uh, so 
Well, why, why do we pay so much attention to the well, minutes? Well, these minutes, even in, and I referenced Dudley in part because he referred to the minutes as a form of communication that the Fed provides to try to clarify policy to the world and to investors. And there he, he threw excerpts from the minutes to show that, hey, uh, early in the year, for example, we, the Fed, pointed to China as a force perhaps shaping uh, the outlook for monetary policy. And so there are excerpts in there that uh, may be intentionally put what? to try and send signals to the market about what might be next. And so the minutes are important to that end. And then, of course, Jen Yellen speaking in Jackson I, I want to ask you, I mean, do you think 26th. the minutes are, are a fair and neutral representation of what was discussed, or do you think well, they shade them to th try to send a, a message? Uh, Himko, of course, has uh, uh, Ben Bernanke, uh, former Fed chair, as an advisor. We've spoken, we, also, we once had uh, Alan Greenspan as a former advisor. I've asked them about the minutes uh, myself, because I've wondered... Um, do the minutes get massaged? Uh, because it does show that uh, the minutes up to the last day, pretty much, the Fed chair gets to review them. But uh, in, af in asking uh, these illustrious people and others uh, within the Fed, it seems that uh, it's really a snapshot, a picture of what happened that day. There is no massaging. Uh, it isn't, there is a very strong attempt, and I've even spoken to people who have written them. Um, there is a very strong attempt to uh, capture the essence of what was happening in the room that day with no, um, no manipulation of any sort, no, uh. and that's the wrong, too strong a word, no massaging, uh, no alterations. It's a snapshot. I was immunizing myself over the heat wave this weekend with Bulldog Gin, Gin and Tonics, and I did it by reading Stigham's Money Market, Anthony Crescenzi and Marcia Stigham. Mike, I got up on money market yields. I got up to page 104, immunizing a portfolio. I got there. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. And what did you learn? I learned that I had to continue immunizing myself with Bulldog Gin and Tonics while I immunized myself with Tony Crescenzi's boring short-term world. Oh, but it's really important, Tony. isn't it? But it's really important. I mean, yeah. it's the oil in the engine, yeah, right? No, Mike and I were just discussing offline about Japan as an example of short-term rates versus long-term rates and what matters more. In many nations, long-term rates matter more. Think of the United States to an you, individual. You, in the U.S., you would Longer even say that. rates matter yeah. because think of uh, the housing market, which is a big part of the yeah. Economy. I mean, it matters to people. Uh, Long-term rates matter. Capital spending, it matters, of course, and even to governments, it matters. But in, in Japan, they're realizing that low long-term rates can actually hurt, and that's low short-term rates that are really important. Low long-term rates can hurt because it's how monetary policy transmits, and it's done negatively because it hurts banks, uh, other financial institutions, including pension funds and insurance companies. And they're all saying, you're hurting us. Do something about it. Steepen the yield curve, which is to say put a spread, a yield spread between long-term mm -hmm. rates and short-term rates. Help us to get better rates uh, on the assets we have. Uh, so banks and asset could be a loan. And so they want to widen the spread. So this is a, something new in, in, the, in policy land, this idea that very low or negative longer-term interest rates can actually prove to be detrimental. It wasn't a belief uh, that was in place when the Bank of Japan push, pushed its policy rate into negative territory at the end of January, but it's, it's become a more widespread belief globally about these uh, short-term rates. And yet we're seeing the, uh, the the ECB still seem to be committed to that. And uh, yeah. we've got, uh, not negative, but extremely low rates but and a very a flat yield curve here in right. the U.S. But there's a shift uh, in 
global policy circles toward credit easing as opposed to uh, rate easing, which is to say, try and do things that uh, push banks to lend, but they're not. It's not easy to do. Banks well, they're pushing want on a to train. If I don't want to borrow, it doesn't matter. What. Or lend. Uh, banks in Europe are three times the size of GDP. In the United States, it's one to one. Banks there are oversized. So for three years in Europe, there was negative growth in lending, the death of money, the vanishing of money. Imagine going to a bank to repay a loan. You have a thousand dollar loan. You want to repay banks for decades, like factories produce things and they produce this money. You say, take it back, bank. I don't want it. I want to delever my situation. That thousand dollars you bring to the bank, unless it's that loan that you pay off is replaced with a new one, the thousand dollars vanishes from the financial system in the same way that it was created out of thin air. Uh, and that means this $1,000 is not available to spend in the economy on goods and services, and that can cause very wretched conditions, uh, the sort we saw in the mm -hmm. 1930s. This is why I say the world without the Fed, these central banks, while we complain about them, we can't do without them because we have a so-called fractional reserve banking system where we need to have lots of paper money, fiat currency system uh, yeah, The Fed's going out to, to Jackson Hole with Kuroda-san from uh, the Bank of Japan and and, uh, and others from the, the European Central Bank, they're going to talk about all this. Uh, monetary policy and, and how it works is, is yeah. on the agenda. Uh, what do you think they should conclude? Well, the last two years, uh, this, the main topic was in, uh, on the Fed's mandate. Last year was inflation dynamics. Two years ago, it was uh, the, the labor market dynamics. And this year, it's about designing uh, better monetary policies for the future. Uh, so it's, it's this introspection. In other words, uh, the Fed will be looking at itself and efficacy, whether it's effective in doing things. The Bank of Japan is undergoing something similar. It said in its last meeting that on September 21st, when it meets again, it will under, have undergone a comprehensive assessment of its policies. So that, to the extent that central banks are looking at themselves, markets will say, well, if the central banks don't exactly know whether they're being effective, why should we? And we should expect them to continue to be to yeah. lean on the side of caution, risk management, and uh, provide <clears throat> lots of monetary accommodation print money. Tony, you have one of the best titles of a book during this crisis, and folks, we are shocked to say we enter the ninth or tenth year of the crisis coming up here in a week. Beyond the Keynesian endpoint was from, I think, five years ago. Yeah. What does that mean, and are we beyond the orthodoxy of economics of another time? Well, then I mentioned the idea that if the world without the Fed would be wretched and difficult because we have an inherently unstable financial system, a so-called fractional reserve banking system, which was a fancy way of saying that banks have more assets, loans, than they have capital in place. And this requires central banks to put money in the system. But when people decide, well, I don't want these loans anymore and pay them off, it can become very problematic because it removes money from the system and yep. it can crush demand. So Keynes <clears throat> in the 30s said, hey, let's spend. Let's have deficit spending. But politicians for decades maybe took it a little too far. Of course, we have lots of government spending for things that don't in the long well, run necessarily produce lots of growth. Where will governments – think of Greece. Where does it – can it – has it reached a Keynesian endpoint? Yes, because it can't borrow in the way it used to to promote economic growth. Well, Ellen That's Zentner a Keynesian endpoint. Ellen Zentner and Morgan Stanley – makes clear she sees a debt buildup now, a renewed debt. Maybe it's in a different portion, segment of the economy. Are we at a point now where we need to worry about less debt? 
there has been an increase in indebtedness. There's been a shift of indebtedness from the private sector, I think uh, households, to the public sector. Remember the large budget deficits the United States had of $1.5 trillion for a number of years, and it's still pretty large, of about $400 billion. So the indebtedness has gone up, and the debt-to-GDP ratio is still rising. The only way to get a handle on that in the long run is to have faster growth. And the central banks are trying, but they can't because they can't force banks to create more money and more spending and and out start to beat this race in terms of debt versus GDP. The only way in the end, we were discussing on television earlier, is for governments to invest in people and in stuff. It could be infrastructure. It could be communications facility. Are you predicting that? Think about I mean, Mike, there does seem to be a bit of inflection. <clears throat> Canada engaged recently in some fiscal spending. You see Japan pivoting a little bit toward it. In the United States, it does seem both sides of the aisle want some form of corporate tax reform, some degree of infrastructure spending. It does seem there will be a little bit of a pivot because we're realizing that central banks have exhausted themselves in terms of uh, efficacy. All central banks can do is pull forward or push back economic activity. They print money. Do they educate people? Do they build roads? Do they create communications facilities, energy grids, things that in the long run can produce economic growth? Not at all. They can only change the timeline of when those things take place, perhaps. And even th- mm. there, they've been very unsuccessful recently. Tom talked about an inflection point in terms of fiscal policy, and you talked about the idea that monetary policy is undergoing reassessment by these various banks. Anybody going to conclude that monetary policy ha- isn't working and that higher rates may be what you need to do? Uh, That's also improbable. It seems that um, central bankers uh, still think that they can be effective and do think that they have been effective. And they have been enormously successful in one way, in preventing the death of money, preventing money from vanishing from the system. As I said in my example earlier, if, if all these loans that have been repaid by people, entities over these recent years were not replaced by new ones, Uh, we would have seen money leave the financial system because that's the sort of financial system we have. We're stuck with it. It's not a gold standard, et cetera. And so they did succeed in closing that hole in terms of the the amounts of money in the financial system. They were trying to prevent it from leaving. Uh, But now it's, it's up to the fiscal authorities to take over from the monetary authorities to do things to promote economic growth so that GDP can run and grow faster than the indebtedness, but that's not happening. So central banks have reached their their point of uh, exhaustion. What if they raised rates once and made clear it was a one-off move? As, as Vice Chairman Fisher wants to get away from ultra well, what would happen in the United what would States? Happen on a, no, what would okay. happen on a Pimco desk? Well, uh, we would. It depends how the markets respond, of course, in terms of where value is created. But long, there's a certain amount of uh, interest rate hikes built into the so-called forward curve. In other words, markets are thinking in the future there'll be interest rate uh, cut hikes uh, that would get priced out. And also, if there's only one, it just depends. It would evolve over time. If one thought there would be only one hike, yeah, and we thought Pimco that there would be a need for four or five or six. Would chaos ensue? We would think, not initially, because... Thank you. They, no, you're right. Because we wouldn't uh, know mm. whether they would, it would produce inflation. The fact right. that the Fed's staying accommodated for a very long period of time, maybe more than is yeah. required. Tony Cosenzi, can't say enough about uh, a book one or two ago. He's a prolific writer. Beyond the Keynesian Endpoint. Um, this is a joy 
absolute joy. John Dickerson, of course, you know him from CBS. The book is Whistle Stop, which comes, I'm going to say, a decade after his fabulous book, On the Trail, about Nancy Dickerson, his mother, and I, which I thought uh, Mike McKee was one of the great courageous books of all time, John Dickerson uh, writing on his life. And now he writes on the president's lives. The book is Whistle Stop. Yeah. My favorite stories from presidential campaign history. Mike, you've covered more presidential campaigns than me. Why don't you start <laughs> with Mr. Dickerson? Well, the thing that has occurred to me is, uh, uh, John, is of, of course we decry the level of rhetoric uh, and deportment in this campaign. But as you make clear, and it's something that I've often thought about, uh, back in 1884, when Tom was just getting into the business, uh, there's a good <clears> example. <throat> or you go, you, you know, go back to the Jefferson campaigns and, and the role the press played there that Donald Trump thinks he's got trouble with the New York Times. Uh, this has all happened before on the campaign trail. Yeah, it's great to be with you guys, by the way. Um, I it has. I mean, Donald Trump is a singular figure. I mean, so we've had businessmen before. Wendell Wilkie in 1940 came out of nowhere, sort of, or at least leapt over the people who were in line ahead of him. But, but you're right. I mean, if you whether you want to look at uh, Andrew Jackson in 1824, you know, a man of the people who people uh, his critics worried about him being a demagogue, putting too much power in the hands of one person who claimed they could fix everything. Or uh, 1884, or I should say 1840, where you know the first kind of presidential campaign where a candidate campaigned, it was a circus. It was more of a circus than it is today. Uh, 1968 with George Wallace, there are parallels there, and and there there are places where you see a lot of what we talk about today. And the tensions we see in the campaign today played out in history before. Well, you look, uh, and, and I, I, I enjoyed uh, the book, and I enjoyed uh, reading, um, going back in history, because I, I find those things fascinating. Um, the 1884 campaign, Cleveland against Blaine, and the charges and countercharges that went back and forth. Um, I mean, the New York Post would be embarrassed to print some of the stuff. Uh, that that's uh, be, And they, they put the naked pictures of Melania Trump on the cover. Um, and yet... The Republic survived. It did. You would, you would, you can only imagine what would have happened to poor uh, Maria Halpin, who, with whom um, Cleveland had his affair. Uh, you know what would happen today on the New York Post if she were, she were uh, uh, around. The, the Republic did survive. It was the last election, I think, uh, when I look back at one where people felt the choice was, um, you know, kind of dreary on both sides. We we see that consistently polls and interviews I do with voters about how depressed they find the choice. Uh, in our recent CBS Battleground Tracker poll in New Hampshire, only 1% of the people we polled said they were uh, happy with the choice. And and yet, after 1884, things worked out okay. Um, and in, in 84, you had Blaine, who was just a uh, was full of scandal, uh, and then Cleveland had the out-of-wedlock birth, which is what made it a tough choice for voters at the time. John, I, I look at your work at CBS each and every uh, Sunday, and it's part of imparting history on an ahistorical public. Whistle Stop is basically a public service of accessible history. What is your single message about what we need to know about our presidential history as we all stagger to the first Tuesday of November? Well, I think it's a great question. I, I, I think the... But a lot of the things we recognize, it, it, there are tensions in the American system that have been there since the beginning between 
the power of the people to break through the hammerlock by elites, uh, but then also um, the fact that the country was founded on the fears of putting too much power in the hands of one person, um, and that those tensions uh, have always been there, and that we seek a balance but not one or the other. I mean, and and to be to be to be nervous about uh, whether we go too far in one one direction or another. Um, and then I think also that there is a resilience to the American experience that that we, uh, we right. get through these moments, and and that's hopeful in a time of uh, where people might feel uh, depressed. We do have um, these complaints uh, recently from Donald Trump about uh, the press, and you go back in history, of course, and uh, in the 1800s, and the press was particularly vicious then. But even since then, in, in the more modern era, and, and I'm thinking you write about um, Edmund Muskie, you write about uh, the, the Dean scream, uh, and in those cases, the press uh, sort of distorted what actually happened, and maybe the candidates did have a reason to complain. Yeah, well, you're right. I mean, this example is a really great one. In 1972, he, he appears to cry when talking about the editor of the Manchester Union Leader. Um, he clearly was emotional, but the first account of it uh, had him sort of a burbling mess of, mm. of, of tears. And um, he must get other problems. He wasn't really—McGovern was a more exciting candidate to the base of the Democratic Party, and Musk, he was trying to be kind of all things to all people— so for him, what really got him is the expectations were too right. high for his candidacy. Yeah. But, but, uh, and of course, then the, the role of Nixon, the Nixon team, in creating the conditions that got Matthew so upset. But, but that's one certainly where the the coverage was not, well, uh, you know, you know, as fair as it could have been. John Dickerson is with us. He is, of course, uh, the moderator of CBS's Face the Nation, 2 p.m. You can hear it here on Bloomberg Radio every Sunday. He's the author of Whistle Stop, My Favorite Stories from Presidential Campaign History. Uh, we were talking about uh, how the past is prologue for a lot of this. Uh, John, if you're, if you're going to write an update to this book in a year or so, what would you say, what would be the central theme of this year's campaign? Would it be Donald Trump or would it be the fact, as you mentioned earlier, that nobody really likes either candidate? Well, yeah, we'd have the benefit of knowing how the election turned out in the end, and so that would be nice. Um, I think it's got to be Donald Trump um, and and what he tapped into, what it said about the state of the Republican Party, where it is right now, what it tells us about campaigns, um, and also then what we decided or in the end about the about the country so if the dis this the dissatisfaction that channeled into the trump campaign was it what we were watching in conservative politics starting with pat buchanan going through the tea party movement was it the latest um, version of that was there something new that then um we can connect with the the sanders movement on the left is that too pat i mean we would i think the the, 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 we've known for a long time that people have been unhappy with their uh, with the, the federal government and unhappy with um, the results of their elections. In other words, they, they vote for people and then don't get what they expected. Um, and so how much of that was behind Donald Trump? Um, and then in the end, if we know what you know who wins uh we'll have to we'll draw some conclusion about what the the nation ultimately decided unhappy as they may be with the choices uh if i ask you what chance donald trump has of winning you, you probably tell me it, it's not over um but 
uh, is there anything that you can base that on other than the fact that he's confounded the critics uh, time and again during this campaign? I mean, by by the metrics we've used in past races, he's in a lot of trouble. Right. I think that's I think that's right. I think you can and then we can go down the line. I think the case for hope, if you're a Trump supporter, is that Hillary Clinton is a weak candidate, which is to say um, she has liabilities. Um, Trump beats her on things like who do you trust to handle the economy and that kind of thing. If somehow he could get the campaign from being a referendum on his temperament to being one about about Hillary Clinton, that might give him a chance. And then if right. something happened out there about Hillary Clinton, uh, that might help. But the, right now it's looking, you know, obviously it's looking pretty uh, dark for him. Uh, John Dickinson, page 147 of Whistle Stop. You go right to where I want to go, which is Barry Goldwater, 1964. Here's the quote, page 160. What in God's name has happened to the Republican Party? From your research and basically the way you live this in Washington, are we just seeing a redux of 64 or is it different than Goldwater Miller? Well, in the sense that there was a stop Goldwater movement and there's a never Trump movement, there is a repeat there. I think what's different is that Donald Trump doesn't represent an ideological wing of Fair. Of the world. I mean, you know, Goldwater was a, was a conservative, and that became the the defining ideology of the Republican Party, and and launched you know Reagan and a right. whole. And and Donald Trump isn't. That's not what he is. And so, there, nevertheless, there are people. I mean, it's absolutely a time of choosing in the Republican Party, but I don't think it's as clear as it was in '64. In terms of, of kind of where people stand ideologically on things, um, you know, Goldwater was the old-fashioned smaller government, um, uh, you know, right. strong national defense, and I just don't. I, Donald Trump doesn't match up with existing ideology. I'll, I'll go with you on that. You have brilliantly in there Henry Cabot Lodge, where Ambassador Lodge gets run over. I get that, and then along comes Nixon X number of years later. Who's the Nixon this time around for the GOP? Well, it's you know it's interesting. I mean, so who is the Nixon or who is the Reagan? Because um, you know a lot of people think Goldwater really the the person who picked up the mantle was Reagan, but then you have Nixon kind of slipping in there in the middle, not um, not as much of a conservative as Reagan. Um, so so that's the big question. Is, is let's say Donald Trump doesn't succeed, then the question is: Is it a kind of a Ted Cruz kind of party that emerges? Uh, more conservative, um, or is it uh, more conservative Western Southern, or is it a John Kasich party? Uh, uh, you know, m- m- buying into the argument that was made in the 2012 autopsy report that the that the party has to reach out to a broader emerging electorate, um, that it has to soften its tone, um, and that's a and then there are players who are in between. Paul Ryan fits somewhere between that that uh, you know those two candidates. Um, and that's the great conversation that's going to take place uh, and is already some people are preparing for it to take place, you know, sort of quietly trying to get first movers advantage if uh, things don't work out for Donald Mike, Trump. Yeah, Mike, jump in here. I, I just can tell you the memories uh, John brings back of the 1840 election, the way Marty Van Buren was treated, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go uh, eight years after that, actually, because I want to uh, sort of follow on what you were just saying about the Republican Party. Is this the Whig Party of 1848, their last election because the party splintered? Or uh, have the two, has the two-party system become so ingrained that you still have the Republicans and the Democrats uh, after this, no matter what happens? 
I think the two-party system is is ingrained. I think <clears throat> I think if, if Donald Trump were a better kind of general election candidate, he would be able to to um, meld the or, or you know bolt the two parts of the party together in a way that he's had some difficulty doing. I mean, in the chapter in the book on Reagan in '76, Reagan decides not to leave the Republican Party. It's one of his genius. Uh, acts and decisions. He knows that if he leaves the party, he'll split it. He'll get blamed for electing uh, uh, Carter, and then he won't be able to kind of put the thing back together again once you break it. And by holding the, by staying in the Republican Party, he's able to then go on and and build that coalition to win in '80. And I think that's the road to success for Republicans. But there may be a group that splits off in anger if Donald Trump doesn't win. John, congratulations, folks. This is the book. If you've got a young kid going off to the University of Virginia like Mr. Dickerson a few years ago, throw the book. Try not to hit their forehead because it's a little thick. But Whistle Stop is just lovely. Uh, It's a lovely way to read about our presidential history. John Dickerson with CBS and Face the Nation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.